Good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming. Uh, in reverse order of, of importance, I will introduce myself, uh, the topic of the talk, and our guest speaker. Uh, my name is Francisco Panitza. I'm professor of Latin American and Comparative Politics at the Department of Government, and I'll be chairing this event. Um, the official title of this event is National Populist, the Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, and is a public lecture organized by the Department of Government. Uh, this event formed part of the New World Disorders series held in the run-up to Delicy Festival, a week-long series of events taking place from the 25th of February to 2 March 2019, free to attend and open to all, exploring how social science can tackle global issues. How did we get there? What are the challenges? And importantly, how can we address them? Full program available online from January 2019, and you are all most welcome to come. Now, um, I have the honor and the pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Matthew Goodwin, who is professor of politics at the University of Kent. Matthew's contribution to research has been recognized by several bodies. In 2014, he was recipient of the Richard Rose Prize for his distinctive contribution to the study of politics. In the same year, he was awarded the Communicator Prize for his dissertation, sorry, for his dissemination of social science, social science research to a wider audience. In 2015, he won the Paddy Power Political Book of the Year for Revolt on the Right, a book I'm sure many of you are familiar with, co-authored with Robert Ford, which was also long-listed for the Orwell Prize. He has published six books, including National Populist, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, published by Penguin, and dozens, dozens of peer-reviewed articles in journals such as the British Journal of Political Science, Electoral Studies, European Journal of Political Research, and Party Politics. Matthew has several other responsibilities. Since 2008, he has been co-editor of the Rulet book series on extremists and democracy. Between 2011 and 2015, he served as a member of the UK government working on anti-Muslim hatred. Between 2013 and 2016, he was a trustee and member of the executive committee of the Political Studies Association. Matthew is an outward-facing researcher who shared the view that social science should be as much about contributing to wider society as to the social sciences. He frequently appears in broadcast and print media and has engaged with more than 200 non-academic organizations, from the European Parliament to the U.S. State Department to the Prime Minister's Office and the Deutsche Bank. Matthew, it's my pleasure to give you the floor to... Uh, He's going to talk for about 40 minutes and then open to questions. Great start. Okay. Um, thanks for uh, coming along uh, thank, and uh, giving up some of your time. Um, so over the next 40 minutes, I'm just going to set out the core argument of our book uh, and try and uh, convince you to buy it, um, among other things. And it's... Uh, I should stress at the outset that what we're trying to do with this book is really draw together 
a lot of uh, evidence in the social sciences to try and um, contribute to the broader debate about the rise of national populism uh, in the West. And I think it, it's, one, it's a topic in a way that I don't need to work too hard to convince you um, about its importance. I think we all uh, know what's going on, and I think particularly when you look at Europe uh, today, I think we would all accept that it's quite uh, a fragile moment uh, for European politics, and there's a lot of debate among social scientists about what's behind uh, the rise of movements like the Lega in Italy, the UK Independence Party uh, previously in Britain uh, that arguably got everything it, it ever wanted, uh, Sweden Democrats, alternative for Germany. Um, and it's not entirely clear where we're headed um, and where we're going. And I wanted to start with Sweden because the recent election in Sweden I found interesting for a number of reasons. One is that when I was doing my PhD in the early, two, early 2000s, um, the argument in a lot of the edited volumes on populism at that point in time was essentially that there were four democracies that would never really have successful populist movements. Um, one was the Netherlands because it was historically liberal and, and, and tolerant. Another was Britain because we had a strong civic culture, strong institutions. We didn't really do populism. Um, the third was Germany because of the legacy of the Second World War and the social norms against populism. And the fourth was Sweden. And I think if you just look at those four democracies over the last 10 years, you know, sometimes when we're living in political change, we don't always recognize the speed at which it takes place. And I think if you look at each of those four states and Sweden within them, that actually we are seeing truly significant shifts. And Sweden really reflected the three broader currents that I think we can see in Europe. One was the decline of the centre-left. Yes, the Social Democrats finished first, but this was their worst performance since 1908. The second was the rise of national populism, uh, the record, uh, a new record result for the Sweden Democrats, which unlike the UK Independence Party, are actually rooted in a tradition of white supremacism. Um, and third was the broader fragmentation of that party system. Lots of smaller parties seeing an increase in their support and that consequently making it that much harder to form a government and to bring a strong and stable and ideologically coherent government uh, that the Swedes need. But also, when you look at those currents across Europe, uh, what Europe needs, which is strong and stable and ideologically coherent uh, governments. And national populism isn't the only story in Europe today. You know, lots of us are following the Greens in Germany. Lots of us are looking at Five Star. Some of us are looking at Spain. But it is a big part of the story. Uh, and it's a movement that I'm going to try and convince you over the next little while. It's a movement that really has only just got started. Um, I don't think this is a movement on, on the way out. And if you look at Marine Le Pen uh, last year in France, Christian, uh, Heinz Christian Stracker in Austria. We've obviously got the US with Bannon and Trump, Viktor Orban, Matteo Salvini. Uh, for those of us who came up through the academic literature on populism, um, we are seeing things that I think are quite remarkable. We never really thought that we'd have somebody like Trump in the White House. We never thought that we'd probably see the Austrian Freedom Party go back into government. Uh, we never really thought that we'd see the Lega, the Northern Separatist Party, eat its way through the Italian electorate to the point where the Lega, according to the latest polls, is the only party that's growing. 
in Italy. Uh, all other parties are uh, uh, seeing a loss uh, in support. But we can also see in the Netherlands, uh, in Germany, uh, Sweden and the UK again, those really uh, significant uh, uh, shifts, uh, even in countries like the Netherlands where Gert Wilders didn't fulfill what the opinion polls suggested, they've still had quite a clear indirect effect in that we found ourselves celebrating the fact that Mark Rutte had won the election following a campaign in which a critic might argue he adopted much of the rhetoric that Gert Wilders uh, had used uh, during some of his own campaigns, the infamous open letter urging minorities to act normal or go home. Um, and also in Germany uh, and the other states, we've seen some pretty significant change. So Europe is very much at a, in a very fragile moment. And this was the front page of The Economist a year ago, a year ago last week. Um, Europe's new political order, Emmanuel Macron uh, with Angela Merkel uh, in the shadows uh, cheering him on. Um, this was the cover of Time magazine two weeks ago, uh, Matteo Salvini. And I think symbolically perhaps um, that's a nice illustration of just how quickly the debate in Europe is shifting. And, of course, Macron is increasingly an outlier. Um, and he's also a president who's facing a number of serious challenges. His approval ratings this morning were 24%. Salvini's are 60%. Um, and I think there, again, you're looking at movements that are linking into public opinion uh, in quite different ways. And, of course, some political movements have lost more than others against the rise of national populism. We've seen this rather remarkable collapse in social democracy. Over the last five years, we've seen social democrats in Austria, the Czech Republic, Italy, Germany, Sweden uh, reach historic lows. We've seen the French socialists collapse, and we've seen the Dutch uh, left as well uh, go through similar problems. Um, the UK is an exception, but the same tensions lie within Labour's electorate. It's just that the first-past-the-post system really disguises it. Um, and I think the question facing social democracy is not how can you now return to a position of electoral competitiveness, but without sounding sort of too polemic, it's how can you survive as a political ideology over the longer term, where in states like Germany and others you are seeing fairly rapidly, key sections of that social democrat uh, electorate move over to the Greens or in, in Sweden move over to the radical left. And this really takes us to what I think is the interesting macro question of sorts, which is when you look at all of this volatility and political churn, does it actually signal the fact that we are nearing the end of a period of great change? Um, or does it instead signal that we're nearer the beginning uh, of a period of great change? And that's a fairly simplistic way of framing it, but it gets us into some of the broader public debates that we're having about populism, that if you think it's the former, that we are kind of going through a, a last uh, moment uh, in a cycle, then you're probably won over by arguments that you read in The Economist or The Financial Times that ultimately this is all about generational change, and that angry old white generations are effectively being replaced by new, more ethnically diverse, highly educated, socially liberal generations. Um, if, on the other hand, you point to movements like Le Pen's, uh, movements like the Austrian Freedom Party, and you point to how some of the deeper uh, currents uh, are reshaping 
our democracies from below, which is certainly where our book uh, uh, is, um, then I think you'd find it very difficult to avoid the conclusion that we are entering into a new period of great change uh, and volatility. Just to start with that argument about generational change, because I read it again last week uh, in a newspaper and I find it quite annoying. Um, if you look just at the socio-demographics of what we're seeing in Europe today, um, you can quickly challenge that particular claim. That in Austria, it was mainly young men who voted for the Austrian Freedom Party candidate at the presidential election. France, what was interesting, very few people noticed this, but in 2017, uh, for the first time in the history of the National Front, Marine Le Pen actually closed the gender gap. Young French women were as likely as young French men to uh, vote for the National Front. She was very popular among 25 to 49-year-olds. If you cast your eyes down the alternative for Germany, Matteo Salvini in Italy, the Sweden Democrats, you can see these movements actually picking up. Uh, much of their support, um, and sometimes they are the most popular among younger uh, younger age groups. Uh, even in the UK, this kind of idea that was peddled by Vince Cable and others that Brexit was a kind of last howl among old whites who want to return to the days of empire, I think in a way distracts us from recognising the diversity within the Leave electorate too. Brexit wasn't exclusively a populist revolt, but one in three black and minority ethnic voters uh, voted Leave. Around half of 35 to 55-year-olds uh, endorse leave, people that are not exactly about to kick the bucket. And in the US, uh, about 41% of white millennials uh, turned out uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, and of course, a lot of the arguments about this really ignore the life cycle effect. Um, James Tilley at Oxford uh, and Jeff Evans have done some really interesting work showing that if you look at support for the Conservative Party here in Britain, um, over time, over three elections. And actually what you find is that generally the life cycle effects uh, really do matter. That in fact each of you will probably become 0.38% more conservative through every year of your life. Uh, which doesn't, which someone's shaking their head vigorously against that notion. I will never turn conservative. Um, you m might be what we call an outlier, um, but no, joking. But the, um, I think the issue is very much that we have almost convinced ourselves into ignoring some of, uh, some of this research. And in fact, the life cycle effect is also a reminder that our societies are aging and older folks do tend to turn out to a greater degree than younger voters. And someone reminded me last week, David Butler actually, the father of British election studies, that um, in the late 1950s there was a popular argument that because of the decline of the, um, the working class and because of the expansion of the new middle class and graduates that over time Labour would inevitably dominate British politics. Um, when in reality over the next 10 elections there were only three Labour majorities. Uh, and so we kind of latch on to some of these narratives in a way of sort of convincing, our, convincing ourselves that perhaps it's not going to be as challenging as, as maybe it is going to be. Um, and I think also when you look at the public debate, there's an element of um, uh, what I would call comfort blankets descending over this debate about populism, that if you look at how we've discussed what is going on and what's driving this political change, we talked about factors that are... Uh, very short term, 
um, and factors that really have been given a level of influence that I would argue is wholly disproportionate to their actual significance. So if you look at things like the, why Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump um, and the Comey letter, if you look at the Brexit debate, if you look at the discussion over Cambridge Analytica, social media and Brexit, or if you look at this argument that Brexit was actually a reflection of lingering racism in society, I don't think any of these particularly carry um, uh, a, a great deal of, uh, of credibility, um, nor does the argument that actually national populism is a byproduct of the post-2008 financial crash. Um, for those of us who have worked in the area for a long time and who have looked at the latest studies on this, most of these parties actually were well on their way long before the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Um, and there's a nice study recently that shows since the crash, they've often picked up most of their support in regions that were least affected by the financial crisis. If you look at Italy as an example, most of the unemployed workers in the South voted five-star most of those who are working full-time, in some cases in fairly affluent regions, voted Labour. Um, and also, I've read pretty much every study that's come out on the role of uh, uh, Twitter influence uh, on the Brexit debate. And while we're here, it's not particularly... The claims of some newspapers are not particularly convincing, but we can return to that in the question, question and answer. Um, I also read this book recently, uh, What Happened by Hillary Clinton. Um, and I realise that she still doesn't know what happened. <laughs> Um, in the sense that it was focused almost exclusively on the campaign. I mean, it really was a very short-term take. Whereas, as John Sides uh, and colleagues in the U.S. have shown, if you look over the longer term at the democratic advantage or disadvantage among key groups, and you just look at the bottom and you see those lines shooting downwards from 2007, 2008, that's a democrat advantage among less well-educated white uh, voters. Uh, and they became more attractive among minorities, but they actually began to hemorrhage support under Obama among those groups that would become key to the Trump electorate but would not be exclusively uh, Trump voters. Um, and so the, the realignment, if you like, was, was very visible before Trump even came down the escalators in Trump Tower. And in the Brexit debate, we've had the same this discussion about Alexander Nix and who was seeing what on Twitter discussion about this infamous claim about the NHS. We basically become obsessed by what happened between January and June 2016. But if you'd been looking at the National Center for Research on Euroscepticism, the studies that they've done, then you would have seen that from 1996 to the referendum, public support for either leaving the EU altogether or dramatically reducing the powers of the European Union had been over 50% every year except two. Uh, that there had long been a very clearly visible tradition of Euroscepticism, and I would certainly argue, as I did at the time, that the fundamentals actually always favoured leave. It's just that our public debate convinced itself into the fact that Remain uh, was the favourite. So these long-term takes are really important, and the way in which our democracies are being reshaped by deep currents are, um, are really important. And what we're trying to do in this book is just to get people just to step back from those short-term takes and just look at some key shifts that are happening underneath our societies and which are going to have quite profound effects. And there are two basic arguments. Um, one is that national populism uh, revolves around four uh, deep-rooted shifts, which were a long time coming, um, and have often given, given way to legitimate grievances uh, that people have about the current social, political, and economic settlement. 
And the second is that because of that, national populism does have serious long-term potential uh, support from a broad alliance of people who share some very intense concerns about how their nations uh, and their communities are changing. And this is what we call the four Ds, and it's a sort of device that we're trying to use to bring people into the arguments. And the four Ds relate to distrust, destruction, deprivation, and dealignment. And these are the currents that are swirling beneath uh, the, the political change that we're seeing across many Western democracies. And let me just start with distrust. And the idea essentially is that throughout the history of democracy, as long as we've had democracy, we've had populism. Uh, liberal democracy has been around for about 100 years. Human civilization, as we know it, has been around for about 6,000 years. Our democracies are very, very young, but whether you look at the direct conception in ancient Greece or today's liberal conception, we have throughout the history of democracy had a tradition of what we would call elite skepticism toward uh, the masses. And that showed its face at various points and also in the academic literatures at various points, but it's created room for populist movements that claim to speak for the people against this tradition of elite uh, skepticism. The problem today is that that tension is now being amplified by a growing disconnect between voters on the one hand and their elected representatives on the other. So national populism, at least partly, is reflecting a deep-rooted distrust of our political, social, and media elites that can be traced back over decades. And when I say people have a legitimate reason to be distrustful, if you look at most of the legislatures across the West, um, you can see uh, a growing uh, disconnect between these groups. If you look at the US, for example, in 2014, just as about a million Americans were seeing that their unemployment benefits were expiring, uh, for the first time in American history, the percentage of lawmakers who were millionaires went over uh, 50%. If you look at the UK, we've seen not those kinds of changes, but the percentage of MPs from a blue-collar background who have had experience of manual work has dropped to 3%. The percentage who have only ever worked in politics is now at a record high of 18%. And in a way, uh, class and income are distractions. The real divide that is now uh, coming very much to the forefront is education. And education, particularly if you look at Macron's cabinet, if you look at Merkel's, if you look at the UK or the US, uh, one of my uh, favorite books recently was Diploma Democracy by um, Mark Bovens uh, and uh, his colleague, which showed that between 1854 and 2017, those upward peaks that you see, the percentage of uh, 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 elected politicians with at least a bachelor's degree, if not more. And what you often find is that the percentage who have MAs, PhDs, is also significantly higher than the national average. And you might argue, well, what's the problem with having highly educated politicians? The problem is twofold. One is that, as we know, education is shaping how people see these issues, particularly identity issues like migration, uh, like uh, the refugee crisis, like supranational integration. But we also know that uh, the distance between politicians and, and citizens has been growing over time. And so it's not a surprise, you might argue, that particularly lower educated groups, working class uh, citizens, have been more likely than any others to feel as though their voice no longer counts within 
uh, their political system. In fact, even today, I was just looking at the latest Eurobarometer data, I and mean, this was the long-term trend which, which in some respects has been celebrated recently in Brussels, but even today nearly one in two people in Europe feel that their voice no longer counts within their political system. But if you look at the latest Eurobarometer data that came out, I think, two days ago, then overall across the uh, EU, again, about half say, my voice no longer counts. But if you go to uh, Hungary, it's 44 percent, Portugal, 36 percent, Romania, 33 percent, the UK, 32 percent, Italy, 24 percent, Greece, 16 percent. And so we can see quite a divergence. If you're in Sweden, Denmark, Germany, you're, you're feeling as though the system's really actually being quite responsive. Um, if you're elsewhere, you're, you're increasingly uh, less likely to feel that way. And that really matters, particularly given that these identity issues have surged up the agenda. And this was a survey we did at Chatham House, which really, I think, illustrates it nicely. If you give people statements like immigration has been good for the country, it's enhanced cultural life, um, alternatively, it makes crime worse, uh, it's a strain on welfare, or we should ban all further migration from mainly Muslim states, which was Donald Trump's policy. The blue columns are voters, the red columns are a, a large sample of political business and media elites. And you can see actually that these value differences in how they're seeing the world uh, around them are actually quite significant. Um, and we also know this matters because of what scholars like Larry Bartels and others call an exclusion bias. That the more uh, our legislatures have become skewed towards higher educated, high income politicians, the less responsive those political systems have generally been to the left behind groups, working class, less well educated groups who have got less out of the political system. Uh, in fact, Bartels concludes in the U.S., actually shortly before Trump, that the views of those groups were, and I direct quote, were utterly irrelevant when it came to much of the policy uh, that was being enacted at that particular time. So the point about distrust is it's not come out of anywhere, and it isn't irrational protest, and it isn't simply anti-establishment, knee-jerk uh, protest. It is grounded in some legitimate grievances about how our political systems have become less representative, particularly of those key groups that are now far more likely than others to turn out for national populism. And we need to talk about that. Um, secondly, destruction. Um, we know, and this is not uh, a secret, that large numbers of people in Western democracies have very strong concerns about the scale and the pace of demographic change. And we would argue, and we go into this in a lot more depth, that whenever you've had large in increases in migration in the US or in Europe, that has often generated a negative reaction among uh, the, the sort of, if you like, the native population. Um, the issue today is that we're now, particularly in Western Europe uh, and the US, we're now entering into a new era of unprecedented uh, migration uh, and uh, ethnic change. And those issues are rapidly rising up the priority list for voters. And large numbers, particularly from those key groups, less well-educated, the working class, are uh, especially negative about how this is changing not just their economies but also their national culture and their ways of life. The national populists are becoming very adept at tapping into this fear that this new era of what you might call hyper-change is uh, seen to be destroying the national way of life, national culture and the national group. If you look at the UK, for example, prior to Brexit, 
as overall levels of net migration increased, public concern followed that very closely. Uh, people were certainly aware of what was going on at the sociotropic national level, and they felt particularly anxious about that. In the US, too, you see a very large uh, uh, increase in migration in the early 20th century. It then gradually declines, as you might suggest, uh, integration uh, and the civil rights agenda uh, really gets going. And then in the uh, 90s uh, and early 2000s, we begin to see uh, that share increase, and it's projected to reach around 19% by about 2060, um, by which point um, uh, white Americans will most likely be, be a minority at that point. Um, if you look at Italy again, as Italy's gone through this rather remarkable decade where it's found itself on the front lines of the refugee crisis and we've seen the increase in the salience of this issue among uh, Italians, that's gone hand in hand uh, with the rise of the Lega, uh, which, as all the survey research has shown pretty conclusively, became the main beneficiary of this concern about real-world shifts that were happening around Italians. Now, of course, Central and Eastern Europe is perhaps the exception to this, where overall levels of diversity are very low, but overall levels of public concern over this issue are very high. And, of course, many people in Central and Eastern Europe uh, are driven more by the sense that Western Europe has made a catastrophic mistake in how it's handled migration and liberalism. Um, and as I'll show you in a second, I think Central and Eastern Europe is in many respects more important than what's happening in Western Europe. But just to give you a sense of how the priority list for voters has changed, this year, YouGov, and you see this partly in the Eurobarometer data too, when people are asked what's the top issue facing Europe today, or what are the most important issues. Uh, this was from YouGov just a few months ago. Um, only in one state did people not say that the top two issues were immigration and terrorism. Uh, Italy was the exception. Italy, it was immigration and unemployment. But we've seen these issues, what you might call the immigra immigration security uh, cluster, really surge to the forefront. The economy, public services, uh, less of a concern than they were. Um, but when people think about Europe as a construct, when they think about the EU particularly, the main challenges that they're perceiving today are very much about these more divisive, more emotional uh, issues uh, relating to uh, how societies are changing and perceived threats to uh, those societies and to security. And I think what's quite interesting when you look at, when you consider these concerns and you consider the fact that they are very strong also in some countries that have low levels of, of overall diversity, um, it's quite interesting when you look at the overall projected population changes in Europe between today and 2080, because we're going to see a pretty mixed picture play out in the continent over the next few decades, especially in Central and East Europe on the sort of far right there, no pun intended. But if you look at Latvia, Bulgaria, uh, Lithuania, some of these countries are forecast to effectively uh, shrink by, by about 40%. Uh, so we're going to see many Central and East European states depopulating, unless, of course, they do one of two things. One is it, uh, if they're successful at luring uh, uh, some of their citizens back from, from Western Europe and Central Europe, or if they have a big injection of migration uh, and they have uh, significant social uh, change. Now, given that uh, in every, pretty much every survey that I run, uh, Hungarians, Poles, Bulgarians and Czechs and Lithuanians are not particularly open to that idea, 
Um, I think we're going to see some pretty significant tension points uh, in the future. Whereas if you look at more Western Europe, if you look at Luxembourg, Sweden, the UK, Bulgaria, Denmark, these societies are forecast to to grow quite significantly over the coming decades, not only because of um, you know, things like the populations simply just growing, growing sort of naturally, but also because of continued inward migration. Uh, and past migration also consequently making these societies more diverse. And lots of people will welcome that. Lots of voters, particularly graduates, middle-class professionals, will celebrate those shifts uh, and support those shifts. But these will also make other groups in society feel profoundly anxious. Um, and in particular, if we look at the growing levels of concern within uh, West European states over the specific issue of Islam within Europe, and you consider the European uh, 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 data gathered by the Pew Research Center, this was uh, the end of 2017, um, even if you have no forward immigration from this point onwards, uh, we have no inward migration into Europe at all, which is highly unlikely. Um, you're looking at the overall share of the population that is Muslim rising from about 5% uh, today to about 7.5%, which obviously isn't a, isn't a lot, but countries like France and Sweden, um, Italy, Germany will see some more significant increases. But if you assume a medium migration scenario where you have ongoing migration but not to the extent that we've had during the refugee crisis, then in France will, that share will get up to about 17%, Sweden coming up to 21%, the UK 17%. And these shifts, um, of course, as I said, may be welcomed by some groups. For others, they will be profoundly, uh, profoundly uh, disturbing. But then in the high migration scenario, which assumes that the EU is not able to uh, reconcile the refugee crisis and it will continue to experience uh, high migration levels, then in Germany, 20%, Sweden, 31%, France, 18%. And national populists, who I would argue at least, are now focusing far more attention on this issue than they are on overall immigration per se, I think will be, will be looking to frame this principally as a threat to European societies and values. Um, third, the idea of deprivation, which is running alongside these concerns over a lack of responsiveness in political systems and perceived fears over how societies are changing. We've got an awkward debate in social science where, where people are either saying, look, this is all economics or this is all culture. And I don't think that debate is particularly helpful because, firstly, the real world never really works that way, at least in my opinion. And I think we need to consider these factors in the whole. But there is a particular point here that I think is really interesting. One is the evolution of the capitalist system, which in its early years, capitalism was always legitimized by um, not just its ability to provide material benefits, but by religious values that celebrated work and a, a shared ethos, a shared community, and also partly by nationalism as a barrier to the expansion of communism. And I think that legitimation of capitalism today has weakened. But the golden age that we saw in the post-war period has also, as we know, increasingly made way for rising inequality, wage stagnation, and the gradual withdrawal of the state uh, in key sectors of our life. And I would argue perhaps that what's more important to explaining the support for national populism and the underlying foundations is not so much objective deprivation, unemployment, declining wages, real visible economic loss, 
but rather this notion of relative deprivation that actually both myself and my group are being left behind relative to others, whether it is the more prosperous middle class, whether it is uh, immigrants, minorities, whether it is different generations, but it is this sense of relative deprivation, which we talk about a lot more in the book, which really comes out quite strongly when you look at Leave voters, when you look at Trump voters, when you look at Marine Le Pen voters, people who are often working full-time, sometimes on good incomes, but are united by this sense that they are not getting a good deal from this current uh, settlement. And that is a perfectly legitimate view to hold, obviously. When you look at overall rates of inequality over the last three decades, only in around three states have we seen the overall uh, level of uh, inequality come back. In most uh, of uh, European states, inequality is actually higher today than it was in the mid-1980s, if you look at, in this case, data from OECD. In fact, the OECD recently concluded that income inequality is, has been growing in most wealthy countries in recent decades, raising questions about the stability and sustainability of our social and economic uh, systems. Um, and we all are familiar with the stats. In the 1980s, average disposable income of the richest 10% was seven times higher than the poorest 10%. Today, it's coming up to 10 times. Um, and we're aware of this, and we talk about it, and it's very much within our public debate. But it is merging, I think, quite strongly with concerns, uh, with those concerns over identity change and a lack of responsiveness within the corridors of power. Workers have good reason to feel as though they're being uh, treated uh, unfairly. The overall share of national income going to workers began trending downwards in the 1980s, long before the financial crisis, and actually peaked just prior, uh, reached its lowest level, sorry, just prior to 2008, and it hasn't really recovered since. Uh, in fact, today, the overall share of income going to workers across many advanced economies is lower than it was uh, in 1970. So when national populists, who crucially have changed much of their economic positioning, you know, Herbert Kitchell in 95 famously argued that the winning formula for the radical right was economic liberalism combined with anti-immigration uh, xenophobia, and it was that, that combination that really allowed them in. I think, actually, Kitchell maybe overestimated economic liberalism, but the game has changed today, where Marine Le Pen would have much in common with Mélenchon in the way that she talks about savage globalization and seeks to prioritize workers over multinational big corporations. And the problem, particularly for the left, is that while it's been outflanked on this desire for cultural security, it's now also having to compete with national populism on that flank around economic security, as these parties have generally become more protectionist and a little bit more interventionist in how they approach the economy. And again, just to hammer home a point, if you compare democracies between 1990 and 2015 and you look at the overall quality of work, and we don't use the word dignity enough, but we should, the overall dignity that comes with work, uh, the overall share of jobs that are uh, temp on temporary contracts, low rates of pay, um, in you know, uh, service sector jobs that, that, that offer very little security, have uh, increased sharply, but noticeably in Germany, uh, in Italy, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, Austria and France. Um, and it's not the fact that we've just got lots of people in work and isn't this a great thing? As we know, this is also feeding a strong sense of broader insecurity and frustration with the current settlement. 
But I think perhaps more important than actually those three fundamentals is actually the way in which our political systems are changing quite quickly. And the path for national populists and for populists on the left has been cleared by something that we talk a lot about in political science, but we don't talk a lot about in the broader debate, which is this notion of dealignment. That if you look at the overall share of people in our democracies now who feel that they are loyally attached to one of the mainstream parties, that they say, I am strongly identifying with one of the current offers. I mean, it's, it's declining pretty steadily and sometimes dramatically across most, if not all, Western democracies. This is showing you US, Britain, Germany, and France that we have now record numbers of voters that are non-aligned, that are looking around, that are acting a lot more like consumers uh, than they are loyal partisans. In the US, the share of independence has reached a record high. And in Sweden, where we were surprised by the result in Sweden, perhaps we shouldn't have been, because if you look on the, the right, the overall share of voters who say, I'm strongly attached to a, a particular political party, or I'm just attached to one of the, uh, the mainstream parties, completely uh, collapsed from 65% uh, in the 1960s to where it is today, which is about 25%. Uh, and, you know, this really helped to open up space for new entrepreneurs who stepped into, in, stepped into the game. In Germany, too, I mean, what a lot of people, again, I think missed in Germany was that the number one source of votes for the AFD were not social democrats or centre-right voters that were defecting, but were non-voters, people who had not participated in the previous election and who had come back into the political system. And this is a risk, in a way, for European party systems in, in that it's going to make them even less stable as non-voters return into elections and start voting. In Germany, if you look from 1972 up until 2009, the overall share of voters who are non-partisan across the generations had increased pretty steadily. And I think in this area at least, um, Central and Eastern Europe gives us one possible glimpse into one possible future that might await West European systems. Uh, if you look at the overall rates of volatility in Central and Eastern Europe, and if you look at the churn in party systems in Central and Eastern Europe, both are much greater. Um, the chart on the right is just showing you the age of parties at the time that that election was held, and the darker the column, the older the party. And you can see as we go in towards 2010 and 2013, you see those light bars coming into action. Lots of young or new parties standing for elections, sometimes winning elections, and then quickly being replaced by even newer parties. Uh, and Tim Horton and Kevin Deegan Krauss have a nice paper on this. They call it the hurricane season. Uh, and the idea being that these party systems are quickly going into very rapid birth, death, and replacement cycles, as, for example, a new party like Five Star can be formed and then win an election within 10 years, which really isn't a long period of time at all. And it may be that in Central and Eastern Europe, where, of course, the roots for party systems are that much weaker and people were not used to uh, multi-party politics and having those strong allegiances, I'm not saying this will definitely happen, I'm throwing it out as an idea, but if we want to get a sense for where West European democracies are headed, it may be that Central and Eastern Europe gives us one possible future. And we know, as a sort of coming into the end, that overall volatility, if you track it from 1940 all the way up to 
basically where we are today, is increasing, that voters are switching their votes from one election to the next uh, uh, much to a much greater degree than they have in the past. That, in turn, is, is removing the stability and the long-term uh, predictability uh, that we had uh, in the past. And this is the point where someone says, well, yeah, at the last election, Labour and the Conservatives got 80% of the vote, and that's true. But John Mellon at Oxford has shown that if you look at 2015 and 2017 and you just go below the aggregate level and you look at voters, these were two of the most volatile elections in the post-war period. Lib Dems were going Labour, Greens were going Labour, UKIP were going Conservative, uh, some Labour were going Conservative, particularly blue-collar workers. And so we're talking about a lot of volatility because our systems have become a lot more volatile. And it's difficult to see how, particularly with regard to social democracy uh, in Europe, um, it's, it's difficult to see how now the genie's out the bottle, how we can get these stable long-term allegiances. And irrespective of what happens next, in a way, irrespective of whether national populists win elections and form governments as we've seen in Italy and Austria, one thing that we do know is happening is that these parties... Uh, and the broader public opinion climate are having a profound effect already on the policy environment, that they're having an indirect effect. And this is a nice study uh, by Marcus Wagner and Thomas Meyer, who look at the positions of centre-left, centre-right, and national populist parties in their manifestos from 1980 all the way to today. And that upward rise that you can see across the board with national populists at the top and then uh, mainstream, the mainstream right, and then at the bottom, the mainstream left, that's parties moving away from socially liberal positions and moving towards more socially conservative and in some cases quite authoritarian positions. And Wagner and Meyer make a crucial point, which is that today many centre-left parties are where national populists were in the 1980s on many of these issues like migration and integration. And we can see this in action. If you look at Sweden and Denmark, you've now got centre-left parties that are rapidly overhauling their previous liberal positions on issues like the refugee crisis, on issues like integration. The Sweden Democrats, they might have finished first at the election, but they did so after pledging to half the number of refugees, to remove welfare for failed asylum seekers, to permanently remove uh, asylum seekers who do not voluntarily leave the country after their applications have been denied. While in Denmark, the government's just pledged to remove all parallel societies by 2030, including reduction of welfare, um, mandatory training for kids under five in sort of Danish values, going to mixed schools, a far more assertive integration agenda, which was supported in part by the centre-left. And the Scandinavians have always perhaps been somewhat of a unique case uh, in that social democracy has always had a more culturally conservative flavour. But even in Germany now, where you see new movements on the left actually opening, openly suggesting that perhaps... In order to win back some AFD voters, perhaps they need to now be making the case against open-door, low-skilled migration. If you look at the Rise Up movement as an example and some of the people floating around uh, the left in Germany. And this may, and I say may, be uh, the future uh, direction of travel. There is, I think, too, and a sort of an implication of all of this, there is a risk for the European Union. Um, and the risk looks a little bit like this. So apart from fending off national populism, there's something going on 
deeper, which I think is significant and we may yet come to talk a lot about in the future years. What was interesting in British politics between 2000 and 2015 was the way in which the, the idea of uh, the EU merged with the idea of immigration. And that, in effect, was what the UK Independence Party will probably be remembered for by future historians, is that when people came to see the EU and they came to think about the EU, they increasingly came to think about uh, overall migration, and in particular EU, EU migration. Um, and that added to the leave vote to the Eurosceptic tradition um, a much greater sense of potency. Uh, it made their case, I think, easier than had they just been trying to make the case from a sovereignty perspective, and it, and it, and it opened them up to different constituencies. What's interesting uh, over the last six months is we now have a bit of evidence that that relationship between attitudes towards the EU and attitudes towards, the immigra towards immigration is strengthening in other EU member states. Now, the first thing to say is that public support for the EU in non, you know, outside of Britain, across much of Europe, is much higher. Um, support for the euro is generally very strong. Italy, perhaps uh, increasingly less so, but generally support for the EU is very strong. But this is a nice study that shows um, between 2002 and 2016, if you look at that chart on the right, that you can see in Britain, which is at the bottom, that relationship between public attitudes towards the EU and immigration really rockets and becomes much stronger. But we're also now seeing that in Italy, um, in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Austria. And I'm not for a second saying that these countries are going to suddenly uh, decide they want to leave the EU, but there is a risk that is reflected in this data, which is unless the EU can deliver a competent and coherent response on the refugee crisis and to these identity concerns, then I would argue these are very much the seeds of a more significant uh, Eurosceptic uh, push against uh, the EU. And here, among voters, um, you, know, you, can, you can peruse the book at your own leisure, but you can see the tightening relationship from the 1980s to the 2010s between how people think of European integration and how they think of immigration. So I've thrown a lot at you, and there's a lot more detail in the book, but the, the thesis, in short, is that what we're seeing in, in, in Europe and the US today, instead of a response to these short-term factors, is a reflection of four deep currents that are swirling beneath our societies, and those will give these national populist movements and some other movements that want to oppose them uh, a much greater durability than I think we currently appreciate. And the worry, at least, is that we end up collectively in a far more polarized environment. Um, and it would be good, perhaps, in discussion to think about how we might go about propping up the center, what you might call the moderate middle, uh, amid some of these deeper trends. Um, but thanks for your time, um, and we can go straight into discussion. Um, thank you very much. Now we open to questions. I will go on rounds of three, so collecting three questions and then giving you the opportunity to answer you. What, I think what the first that raise your hand here. Hi, I'm Chris. I study here. Um, I was wondering, you used 
the word populism sort of in relation to uh, the right. I was wondering how you define populism and um, some other, other definitions out there too, um, and what you make of the feasibility of a leftist populism. Um, second question. Uh, on the top, the guy with the glasses there. Uh, th uh, thanks very much, uh, Philip Blonde. Hi, hi, Matthew. Um, fantastic stuff. Um, what really interests me is 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 why are people retreating to ethnicity in order to express solidarity? Because because liberalism has in effect destroyed solidarity, and arguably, solidarity is the only force that can protect the poor or the marginalised. I mean that. That's been true, I think, since, you know, human settlement. Um, why do we not have any other factor that, that can produce solidarity? Why is ethnicity the most um, prevalent factor? And if you look at studies of anthropology, that's like one of our most primitive forms of identification. But nothing else seems in with the running, not even in a country like ours that has never had a racial account of what it is to be British, but we've always had a, you know, a, a civic account, and that doesn't seem to survive. So what hope for solidarity outside of ethnicity, uh, Matthew, would be, would be my question. And a third question, uh, the guy with the cap there, yeah, you. Uh, thank you for your lecture. Um, the uh, one possible confounding variable that I noticed that you didn't touch on would be uh, media ecology. Yeah. Sorry, I couldn't see where you were. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm here. Um, yeah. So, um, so you know, in the U.S., you have sort of the um, Fox News empire. Um, in the U.K., you have like the Daily Mail. In some places like Eastern Europe, you have oligarchs consolidating control over the media. Um, do you see this as a significant influence in um, generating some of this uh, popular opinion that we're seeing in, in the data? Okay, over to you. Yeah. Um, thank you. Great questions. Um, so on the definitions, uh, I just thought, given that the so-called war of words in the literature on populism, right, that we constantly talk about how we define these movements. I wouldn't bore you with my 20-minute um, take, but there is a whole chapter, good news, a whole chapter in the book. Uh, it's just outside. Um, we, we, do, we do take issue with um, the tendency in the literature to focus only on nativism, yeah? So the idea that we have at least, so you've got this dispute about is populism, a, is populism a style or is it an ideology? Is it a thin ideology that can attach itself to, to longer traditions? And I think if you view it as a style, you're drawn to looking at things like what's Donald Trump tweeting? You know, what are the, what's the AFD doing with rallies and demonstrations? What's the latest thing that Salvini said that we can compare to Mussolini and that kind of stuff that really amplifies this notion that what we're seeing is a return to kind of a more almost fascism, basically, or certainly open extremism. And then there are those who say, actually, no, uh, populism is, is an ideology in its own right that has a distinctive tradition. And we certainly fall within that latter camp in that we think this is quite different from 
extremism is quite different from fascism. But national populism seeks to prioritize the interests uh, and the goals of the nation against what it sees as, as corrupt, self-serving, or neglectful uh, elites. And it's, the potency with populism comes from its not, not, it doesn't just come from what it seeks to exclude, like immigrants, minorities, but it, it does come partly from what it seeks to include and that sense of inclusivity that I'm bringing you into a community. And we might all quibble with how they define that community, but we have to try and get our heads around what is it that gives this movement the potency that it has. And we at least argue that it is partly about that inclusive element as much as it, as it is about blaming others in society. And it feeds off this notion that I don't have a seat at the table and I might not necessarily agree with what Salvini's saying or what Le Pen's saying or what the AFD is saying, but I, I, they will get me at the table. They will get me a seat at the table. And I think that gives it a sense of gets real power. Um, so Philip's question, I mean, I obviously agree with you in that um, the interesting thing about national populist voters is that they don't only see the nation strictly in ethnic terms. And I think this is really an important point. And we, we talk about this. If you look at data that's been collected by Pew, actually only a minority of national populist voters define the national community along the lines of a very narrow kind of ethnic conception. Um, what we see, uh, perhaps more so than that, is a very clear desire that... Uh, uh, Migrants, minorities, um, speak the language, share the customs, share the traditions, buy into the national community. And that kind of leads me on to your point about solidarity, which is you know, why do we struggle with solidarity when we start thinking about it outside of an ethnic sense? Because I, I think, and to be frank, I think many people struggle with um, how we can tell a national story, a cohesive story, um, that is as much about bringing, bringing us together than it is about focusing on what differentiates us. And I think on the left, my own view is that we've seen a very corrosive, uh, the corrosive influence of identity politics, which has even made that, that, has made that uh, task that much harder. Nobody's really talking about how we can try and build bonds between groups. Everybody's talking about what differentiates us. And we're instinctively nervous about what you might call small p patriotism because many view that as still being in, instinctively too close to nationalism and they don't want to perhaps have a conversation about how we can put that to use in a more progressive way. And I think we've seen a lot of that after Brexit. There's been a real reluctance to give a reply to Brexit. And Brexit will need a reply it, you know, people have issued, they've put something on the table. We, know, we now all need to reply to it. Now, one option is, well, let's overturn it. I don't, you know, that's one option. Another option is to think outside the box about how we might reply to this moment in British politics and how we might try and build a new sense of solidarity with communities that legitimately felt that they weren't getting a good deal in the social and economic uh, settlement. And that's going to require a lot of people to put themselves uh, in uncomfortable um, territory. And I hope that uh, my friends on the left can, can really do that. And uh, at the moment, we're not, 
we're not sadly seeing much evidence that they can. Um, the media, I'm slightly apprehensive about this question because I don't work on media, and I know colleagues, particularly at the LSE, do, and they do a very good job of it. The one thing I would say is that I'm not entirely convinced that the media has the level of influ influence that some claim when it comes to populism. And my reason for that is that uh, we know that this is primarily a value-driven conflict. We know that people are coming to these movements principally because of their values. And we generally know that values are shaped by things like higher education and social networks, but are not fundamentally altered by um, constructs such as media. Um, they can be amplified and they can be exacerbated and they can certainly be, be sort of brought into politics. Um, but that to me, and I welcome a longer term conversation about it, that to me strikes, seems like more of a surface effect than a core underlying driver. Um, and I think, you know, the media does have a role. I think, I do think social media has a role in exacerbating polarization. Um, but I'm interested in what are the deeper currents that are actually pushing these traditions and these movements forward um, you know and, and and that's where I think maybe some of the the value conflicts the role of the educational divide these deeper trends are a bit more important uh, the guy here on the third row yeah no you you yeah Uh, yes, thank, uh, thank you for your uh, interesting and rather, I, I thought, in parts quite disturbing lecture. Um, on the way down here, I, um, I, I sort of, because it's, it's like 20 years ago since I did my politics degree, but uh, on the way down here, I was, was started thinking about what are these economic values that we associate with liberal democracy and what are the political values. Now, as a democratic socialist on the left, I can well understand how globalization, um, you know, um, savage austerity cuts to public services that poor people depend on, um, you know, um, and also the, uh, the institutions of liberal democracy such as the UN and the um, EU have their failure to, 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 to adequately, seriously grapple with migration crisis have fueled populism. But on the political side of liberalism, there are some very interesting and important values there which you, didn't re you don't really touch upon, like tolerance, the idea of multiculturalism as opposed to monoculturalism, um, the, um, the, the, a, a definition of popular sovereignty that, um, that, that is inclusive and not limited to race or ethnicity. Um, you know, um, you know the, these, these values are very, very important. Um, even the idea of equality of opportunity which is a very liberal concept, a, a, a concept rooted in, in a, a kind of view of social justice that's egalitarian. Um, you know, and um, I, I, I wonder what you think are, is the future for, for the political side, the progressive political side of liberalism. Surely the problem here is that it doesn't assert itself vigorously enough in its debates and its opposition to populism, um, and therefore it has opened up a void which the populists have filled with their hate-filled, hate-hate politics around scapegoating immigrants and, 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 and Muslims and um, people of minority ethnic background. 
Okay, thank uh, you. In the upper floor, the guy with the light jacket and the beard. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you, Matthew. Um, a very interesting talk. Um, my name is Osman. I wanted to ask you a question on the idea of relative deprivation with reference to education. Um, I read an article uh, that was published, I think, in the Times uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I think in reference to this book, in fact. Um, and in that, it mentions how education amongst young people especially is an indicator of whether or not they will uh, move towards populist ideas or not. Mm. And first of all, I wanted to confirm whether that is how you see it. And also, if that is true, is that is one of the reasons for that because students um, in the uh, educational institutions see people who are foreigners or foreign students are in fact sacrificing a lot more and therefore, the idea of deprivation is actually on the, on the foreigners rather than on, on themselves. And is that a factor, and as, opposed, as opposed to outside of the education system where perhaps it's uh, different? Thank no you. women have raised a hand. There's no women asking questions. Oh, here you have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you sorry, first. Sorry. I, I saw you first. Sorry. Yeah. Second floor. Second row. Yeah. Um, hi. Um, you talk about elites, and you sort of put a, a you just almost had it as a proper noun with a, with a capital E, as if this was a sort of standardized construct. Um, you, you, you sort of describe graduates as an elite, and yet I'd, I'd sort of question whether, you know, a young graduate coming out of college with a lot of debt is in fact an elite versus an older working class person who comfortably owns their own house without a mortgage. So I think there's this, there's this sort of, elites are different to different people, I think. Mm. And I think there's also a point that a lot of these populist movements are being led by ultra-elitists. I mean, obviously Trump being the, the ultimate example of, of, of someone who is extremely wealthy and extremely elite, then sort of apparently backing people who, who come from a background very, very different from his. Yeah, thank you. Okay, There's right. one over here as well. Oh, but, yeah, Sorry, but, just while we... Yeah, yeah. Um, yes? You. Okay. Thanks. Um, I think, so. There's two questions I want to ask. One is about distrust. And similar to going to the direction of the question just asked, I'm just wondering, can you present us with any sort of cross-temporal data on have... Was there ever a better match between elite and citizen preferences, or mm. has this just been mobilized by these new parties as something, or has it always been like that? Um, I guess I'm not completely sold on that link yet. And then the other thing I'd like to ask about is you're telling us about this sort of shift towards the radical right, both in terms of policies and also in terms of the political landscape. How do you place the rise of green parties, thinking about Bavarian yeah. state election, for yeah, instance, yeah, yeah. Rather than a shift towards the radical right, are we actually observing just a new form of polarization mm. into this new value pivot? Yeah, good questions. Um, so in no particular order, and just pick up on the last point. Um, I mean, I think obviously the Bavaria election got a lot of people talking. And I think um, my view on this is that uh, I think social democracy longer term simply cannot sustain the coalition that it uh, that it had for much of the post-war period, because the disconnect between, particularly between workers and what you might sort of refer to as sort of new culturally liberal middle-class professionals, I just don't think that we have much evidence that that is sustainable. I mean, even in in the UK, my Corbynista uh, friends 
um, still haven't given me a convincing answer to how you hold Hampstead and Hartlepool over the next um, 20, 30 years, other than they both care about the economy. Well, yes, that's partly true, but they also think fundamentally differently about pretty much everything else. Um, so it's going to be a challenge. Um, and it might be that the Greens, and I would also add the radical left, are beneficiaries of that uh, disintegration. And it might be that what we're seeing in Germany, which is early days, right, and the Greens are now rocking out in the national polls too, but it might be that actually they are beginning to benefit and feed on some of those votes. I mean, looking at the vote flows in Germany, they weren't only excess SPD voters, they also came more broadly. But however, I would still challenge uh, Green watchers to give me one study that shows that Greens are having anything like the impact on public policy that national populists or this public opinion climate is having. Because if you look at gen the general direction of travel, it might be that actually, you know, every, without sounding too much like a cliche, every, rea every reaction produces a counter-reaction. And I am sold by this idea that what, we, what we've witnessed, particularly in Western Europe from the 80s to basically today, is partly a counter-reaction to the rise of a sort of new liberal consensus from the 60s onwards. Then it might be that we are about to see a much stronger counter-reaction to national populism and social conservatism. I'm not close to that idea. I just don't currently see much evidence uh, for it, with the exception of, of Bavaria and perhaps some, some bits in Sweden and Luxembourg. Um, the data, the issue about trust, and I'll try and answer these shortly because I'm going on, but the, data, the issue about trust is, so take the U.S. as an example, well, the first thing to say is pretty much every single study we've had on national populist voters since 1988 has shown that political distrust is typically the second strongest predictor of whether or not somebody will vote for these parties. The first is immigration, a desire to uh, lower immigration or, or however you operationalize it, a desire to push back against what you see as a perceived threat. So it's that potent, what I call potent cocktail between immigration and distrust. And I think um, that relationship was, was always there. Um, but in the US, for example, and we do this in the book, um, from 1960s to basically today, you see overall levels of trust in government and institutions completely tank and completely fall off a cliff. Um, and in the UK, uh, we've seen um, a pretty significant increase uh, since the 70s and 80s in what you might call, sort of colleagues have called uh, kind of an anti-politics mood within the UK that you can track over time. Um, that has created a far more fertile environment for these parties, much more fertile than, say, the Pujadis had in 1950s France or the National Front had in 1960s, 1970s Britain. Um, but, uh, but, it, but maybe read the book and come back to me if you still don't think it's convincing. Um, it's only uh, it's only nine ninety nine um, <laughs> or four ninety nine on Kindle if you have a Kindle. Um, the question, so just to wrap up your point about tolerance and multiculturalism, one of the things, because I know that sort of Fukuyama's been doing the book tour as well, so I have to make this point. Um, the, so what, because I was rereading that book because I was having to write something about his new one, and he does make a very interesting point in that book, which is that if liberal democracy one of the reasons liberal democracy has been so devastatingly effective, right, has been so really, really effective as a, as a, as a system, is that it did satisfy people's, uh, or began to satisfy people's struggle for recognition, their broad struggle for recognition. It gave them a sense that they were, as an individual, being recognized. And I think the reality today is while some groups are 
very much feeling that they are uh, winning in that um, struggle for recognition. I think a lot of other uh, groups are feeling uh, that they are either not being recognized or that they are losing in that battle uh, for recognition. And it's an impossible uh, balancing act to keep everybody in a society uh, engaged and, and listened to at the same time. But if I looked at the survey data in Britain, for example, shortly before Brexit, 45% of working class voters, irrespective of ethnicity and so on, were saying, um, people like me have no say in government. Uh, and shortly before Trump, about half uh, blue-collar workers in the U.S. were saying the same, just not even, not, not, not in this conversation. I'm not in this conversation about society and where we're going. And so um, while we've seen some very remarkable gains, particularly in legislatures too, the share of women and ethnic minorities in the U.S., in the France and in the UK is at a record high, and that should be applauded and celebrated. The share of non-graduates or working-class uh, uh, folks in those legislatures has, you know, fallen off a cliff or is certainly declining rapidly. Um, and that's going to, I think, increasingly be a problem, given that these groups hold fundamentally different value. Um, values and preferences on these increasingly important issues. Um, and that is shaped by education. And the educational divide, we know the educational divide runs through much of this. We know that the effect of education is mainly, although the jury's still out, is mainly, I think, about socialization at university and how education feeds into our social networks and puts us with like-minded individuals and typically socially liberal uh, individuals, and we know that, that that does have an effect, and there's some work in the British Journal of Sociology and other places that, that has convinced me of that. But we also know that non-graduates still outnumber graduates in a number of key areas, that we know that if you look at the Rust Belt states in the US, it's not even close. If you look even at the UK, one in two without a degree, if you look at Italy in the southern periphery, we know that the educational divide is much starker than it is in parts of Western Europe. And so this narrative that I often hear that, well, the share of graduates is increasing, so therefore all of this will go away. I, I don't find that particularly convincing in the short term. And also in the US, by the way, I think if you look at some of the enrollment figures now, we're beginning to see, I think, maybe we, this is a conversation for five years from now, but I think we're beginning to see generation, new generations question the value of higher education in a much greater way than, than, than we've seen in the past. And it may be that partly also we need to come about, the, approach this in a bit of a, in a bit of a perhaps cleverer way than we are at the moment, in that we also need to invest a lot more resources and time in thinking about how we can support, particularly in Britain, how we can support and promote vocational training and non-university uh, based education uh, and skill-based uh, skill opportunities, as opposed to how we can get as many people as possible into, into you know, sort of traditional higher education. And if we began to actually think more creatively about the educational process and how we go about closing these gaps, we might actually simultaneously be able to get at this deeper sense among some groups that, that, that the society is very much rigged towards those with, with degrees. And you know, the problem, I think you know, Schatzschneider said that you know, the problem is in the pluralist heaven that people speak with an upper class accent. And the problem today is we've got lots of people speaking with middle class accents and holding MAs and PhDs at the same time. And that is partly, I think, fueling a sense among other groups that they're just not even at the table and uh, society is headed in a direction that, uh, that uh, they, they don't particularly have any, any real control 
uh, or influence over. Last round. Uh, Sorry, I'll keep my answer shorter because I'm. Yeah, nice short because uh, white shirt. Yeah, there. Thanks, thanks very much. We've mentioned the challenge to the Social Democrats. Um, could you just say a few words about the uh, right? That's to say, we know that Angela Merkel has been in serious trouble ever since she took that very liberal view on uh, immigration in 2015. And of course, the whole issue is far from irrelevant to the current uh, state um, of the Conservative Party. I mean, should such parties contemplate looking for a Donald Trump-type figure if they're going to salvage their uh, percentage of vote, or mm. what? What should happen? Thank you. Okay. Uh, two more, nice and short. Uh, the lady there at the back. Okay. Thanks, Matthew. Um, I want to read this book, but I just want to know, did you sufficiently ground yourself as a neutral observer of events, or is this going to be a progressive's guide in how to overturn a movement on the right? That's a really interesting question, thanks. Um, <laughs> and the last question, nice and short, uh, the guy with the white hair, we are Thank you. Yeah, also fast, white hair, why not? Last, thank you. There's uh, no doubt that there's uh, been a huge variation in what's going on in different parts of Europe. But nonetheless, immigration clearly plays a huge part in that. Mm. Looking at it from the point of view of the world, the tolerance of large flows of migration, both within and without and between countries like the flows in China have been truly massive, hundreds of millions. Why is the rest of the world so tolerant to migrants when Europe is not? Okay. Big, yeah. Um, thank you. On the social democracy point, um, do, I, I think I've got this right. Do they need a Donald Trump in order to basically rejuvenate um, or a charismatic figure? Um, well, you know, Martin Schultz was supposed to solve this problem. You know, we kind of forget this now, but the Schultz effect, which captivated much of the media when you saw that kind of temporary increase in polling numbers. Um, I think the problem for social democracy is much deeper than any personality can fix. I think it, the fact that it is happening across most democracies shows us quite clearly that it's structural and that it isn't a supply side problem. It is a Partly it's a demand side problem. They've reacted very poorly to the current uh, changes in public opinion, but internally they've been torn I think very much by this, uh, torn apart really, by this conflict between competing and I would suggest irreconcilable groups over some of these issues, particularly identity issues. And they've also partly and perhaps rightly, you might argue, been blamed for not being sufficiently economically radical during the period at which they were in power and in government. And I am quite persuaded by some of Sherry Berman's arguments that the left should have worked a lot harder to redistribute. It should have been more assertive when it had a chance in the, in the era of the third way and, and so on. But I'm also less persuaded by my colleagues who say, well, all the answer is only economic because clearly I think they need to also accept that the desire for a broader sense of security is, is now very much at play and it isn't only about redistribution. Um, so I don't know what the answer is. It may be, as the previous speaker alluded, it may just be that we are 
entering into a more prolonged period of polarization and that both the center the center left and the center right may find themselves being pushed around by forces on their on their right and, and left flanks the question about being a sort of neutral observer or wanting to overturn this stuff is fascinating because we don't talk enough about it about what people's motivations are i mean you know i um i think i'd probably my the criticism i probably would get more than most is that i spend too much time listening to people who vote for national populists than I do in proactively perhaps trying to overturn national populism as some of my colleagues would probably do, taking a more sort of campaigning type ethos, which I personally have always struggled with. Um, but, but I think academia generally, I think we, we are very much facing um, a real challenge to actually try and look at what's happening dispassionately and quite coldly, quite clinically, and being driven by the evidence more so than our um, sort of normative dispositions as much as that's possible. Um, and I think, you know, one of the observations in the academic literature in the mid-90s, which was ironically, well, in the mid-90s, uh, was that it had become too political, that there were too many political activists in the literature driven by political objectives to demonize and discredit and pathologize uh, what was going on. And a similar thing happened in America in the uh, late 40s and early 50s where much of the reaction to some of the things that were going on in the US I think was quite, was quite similar. What we need to be is evidence-led as much as possible. And I would refer you to a, a Sunday Times review last week of, uh, of our book which referred to it as a uh, cold and cool dispassionate analysis um, so there you go I, I fight back against my twitter critics who argue that i am i am too sympathetic to the left behind in the west um, and lastly the point about europe i completely agree with you i don't have a short and snappy answer but the one thing i can say about europe is that the challenges with regard to demography are really really only just beginning europe is aging it is not productive enough, it's not dynamic enough, it's going to face continued and sustained pressure from demographic change and much of the resistance to that, the strongest resistance will come from Central and East European states who have never really reconciled themselves to everything that, that what EU membership entails and more generally what liberalism entails and I think that the reaction from those countries will be very um, it will be volatile, it will be very fluid, I think it will be very hostile. Um, and it may be that, that Western Europe, over the long, longer term, has an easier time than Central and Eastern Europe. But we are putting a lot of chips in social science on contact theory and the idea that as we enter into this period of unprecedented change, that we are going to see people developing the bridges and the networks that Gordon Allport argued would be essential to building cohesive societies and I would hope that our policy makers and governments and thinkers and academics would also you know will work as hard as they can to ensure that some of that does happen because we're putting a lot of we're putting a lot of uh, hope in contact theory, navigating, helping us to navigate what we know is going to make a lot of people feel incredibly anxious and incredibly uncomfortable outside of London, outside of the university towns, outside of um, the graduate communities and the middle class professional communities. And it is going to create 
a lot of political effects, and I'm not saying those, those are all going to be negative, some will be positive, but it's difficult to see how volatility declines over the uh, coming years. If anything, I think the evidence points in the other direction, um, and we may be in for something of a bumpy ride. Thank you very much for a fascinating talk. Thank you.